I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. That's the name of the show. That was a, that was a jazzy, I yeah. jazzed it up. You were uh, vamping. <laughs> I am, I am extra brain dead today. We will talk right. about it all on the after show. Okay. Sounds and good. It'll be a fun after show. I am going to say thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Sounds good. For the past week. We had Catherine, Christopher, Andrea, Jennifer, Kimberly, Anna E, Brandy, William, Ashley, Melissa, Emily, Amanda, James, Lisa, Catherine, Selena, Michelle, Bonnie, Lily, Kenya, Laura, Sarah, Anna, Michael, Ella May, Anna. Oh, it's just Anne. Anne Marie, Emily, Daniel, Jamie, Brielle, Jamie, Rachel, Sarah, Kara, Jenny, Bethany, Jack, Claudia, Rogelio, HJB, Scarlett, Joy, Katie, Rebecca, Kelly, and Nikki. That was literally the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Thanks, I'm sorry, guys. guys. If this was your week. <laughs> she didn't give it the oomph. <laughs> no, it was all with love. Uh, okay. So this week we are going to do a story I've wanted to do for a while because I was obsessed with the movie based on this crime as a kid. And it was just another movie I was way too young to be watching, but I sure watched it and fucking loved it. And that movie is Looking for Mr. Goodbar. <gasps> Finally. So <laughs> this uh, movie is a 1977 crime drama. It is based on Judith Rosner's best-selling 1975 novel of the same name. The book won critical acclaim. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. And at the time, the book was described as a stunning psychological study of a woman's passive complicity in her own death. That's so <laughs> that, that is a uh yeah. Quite an assertion. We're going to get into some of the absolute bullshit regarding how the real case was presented in the media, how fucked up it was, and how the book and movie further added to the victim blaming that was suffered by the actual woman the character played by Diane Keaton is based on, Roseanne Quinn. So people really wanted to turn this case into a cautionary tale. And you see that a lot in the 70s, especially as women were finding their independence and sexual freedom. One headline after this case, uh, or after her murder, said it was just a simple, big, huge headline that said, who's next? Jesus. So it's like, it really was pushed as this, like, women, see what happens when you fuck around. like When you get a credit card. <laughs> Yeah, see what happens. Stay in the kitchen. Okay. Uh, so my sources for this are a lot of old newspaper uh, articles, especially from the New York Daily News, who really went all in on this case. The book called Closing Time, The True Story of the Good Bar Murder by Lacey Fosberg. 
this is actually not the true story. Uh, it purpur- it's supposed to be the true story, but she actually invents a lot of dialogue between the characters that w- couldn't possibly be known. So I kind of looked through it, but I didn't find, I didn't know what was real and what wasn't. So I just relied on newspaper articles more than that book. I also watched a Crime to Remember episode on the case, and I did rewatch the movie, which is incredibly 70s. Like, it is one of the most 70s movie ever. <laughs> just like in the opening credits, they they montage like 10 disco songs. <laughs> just like very weird. It looks like that 70s New York film, like when you see New York in a movie uh, around that time. Uh, anyway, I, I can't say it's a good movie, but I sure loved it as a kid, and it's definitely uh, something. Of course you did, Desi. <laughs> uh, so I also want to be clear that I will be presenting media stories and commentary from the time of this case that is definitely victim-blaming and awful. And if I don't say it every single time I mention something, I want you to know that I'm 100% against victim-blaming. Because <laughs> I know people like to be like, well, she didn't say it this time. It's like, I'm always against it. I'm not going to interrupt every sentence to go, guys, I don't agree with this. I'm presenting information from that time, which is going to be not great. Okay. Uh, Women have a right to be sexually active, in my opinion. Well, if you listen to the show, if this is your first time listening to the show. But you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you got to clear up these things. I'm always against it. I don't think women deserve to be murdered or sexually assaulted because of uh, anything that they do. Um, So we're going to be talking about how fucked up these views are. And in this case in particular, how the narrative sort of took on a life of its own uh, in order to up these tabloid and scandalous aspects in the case, as well as adding to this moral panic of single women having casual sex uh, at all. On Tuesday, January 2nd, 1973, Roseanne Quinn, a 28-year-old teacher at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf, did not show up for work, no call, nothing, which was completely out of character for the responsible teacher. When she failed to show up the next day as well, her colleagues at St. Joseph's became worried and the principal sent a teacher to her apartment. He knocked on the door but got no response, and after asking the building superintendent to unlock the door, they made a horrific discovery. Quinn's body was lying across her fold-out bed. She appeared to have been stabbed, her naked body covered by a blood-soaked blue bathrobe. Blood was splattered along the back wall, and a statue lay across her broken face. Her cat, Missy, was there, food still in bowl, indicating that she had probably been dead for not much longer than 24 hours. Neighbors were shocked that the mild-mannered teacher would have had such a brutal end, and they couldn't wrap their head around someone that could do this to this teacher who had dedicated her life to helping children with disabilities. The owner of the local dry cleaner described her as quiet and shy, not like the usual weirdos in uh, this Upper West Side neighborhood, he said. She wore skirts and blouses, not any of that hippie stuff. But as the case began to unravel, news reports would shift to a different narrative. According to the media reports at the time, Roseanne Quinn was living a double life. Wholesome teacher by day, sucks, sucks, sex-hungry woman by night. So who was the real Roseanne Quinn? That is a totally valid identity, by the yeah, way. Yeah, what's wrong with that? That's, like- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> What, is she supposed to go to school teaching these kids wearing a dominatrix outfit? Yeah, she's going to wear blouses. (laughs) That's what blouses are for, jobs. It's for jobs. (laughs) Those Uh, kinds of jobs, at least. Yeah, I mean, they make real hay of this idea that she's a different person at night 
as opposed to day. But it's like, aren't we all to some extent? Like, we have our job. teachers fuck too. Yeah, I mean, hello. That's like a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Roseanne was born in 1944 into an extremely Irish-American Catholic family. The family was in the Bronx when she was born, but at, at the age of 11, they moved to Mine Hill Township, New Jersey. At age 13, she was diagnosed with scoliosis. Uh, she actually spent a year in the hospital after a back operation to uh, help her with this disorder, which left her with a slight limp. But other than that, she was able to return to her pre-surgery life relatively easily. Her parents were both devout Catholics, so she was raised in a very conservative household with old school thoughts and ideas on women and sexuality. In 1962, she graduated from Morris Catholic High School, where she was well-liked. A description in her yearbook described her as easy to meet, nice to know. In 1966, she graduated from Newark State Teachers College, and after that, she taught for three years in Newark. In September of 1969, she began teaching at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx, where she taught a class of eight eight eight-year-olds. She voluntarily stayed after school to help the children, and other teachers recalled that students just loved her. Um, She was a dedicated teacher who was also very well-liked by all of her peers. Now, by the time the early 1970s rolled around, as we all know, the women's movement and the sexual revolution revolution were taking hold. And she was really on board with all of this. Uh, She was very liberal despite her conservative upbringing. In 1972, she moved by herself into New York City, renting a small studio apartment on the Upper West Side. The building had been known as the Hotel West Pierre before being converted to apartments four years earlier. Now, although the Upper West Side is pretty upscale right now, in the 70s, this was still kind of a seedy area. New York City in general was famously run down and crime-infested during this period, and her apartment was very close to what was called Needle Park, which was an area where people would get together to do heroin. So there was a lot of crime related to that encampment being there. There was armed robberies, muggings were very common in the area, and in general, the murder rates in Manhattan are supposedly very high at this time. But Roseanne liked living alone and being independent and wasn't scared living where she lived at all. One of her favorite things to do after a hard day at work was go to a local bar alone. There she would sit, sometimes reading a book while sipping wine. She's a bar reader. Oh, we just I just learned about that. That's because uh, so someone had a controversial hot take tweet. Right? Saying that no one does that? No. Somebody tweeted like a month ago or something that he judges everybody who brings a book to a bar. And I didn't even know that enough people read at bars. Yeah. That that would be something that people found annoying. It's a weird thing to find annoying, too. Yeah. Who cares? (laughs) Who gives a shit? I mean, he did, that guy did apologize, I think. So I'll give him credit for that. But yeah. I mean, if I lived by a bar, maybe I would re- go there, have a drink, and read. Right. I just, I mean, in LA, that's something that you really can't do like you could in New York, just walking yeah. down to the corner. Um, and sometimes she would engage with other regulars. Like she lived by a bunch of bars that were very 
local regulars always kind of hanging out, very cheers uh, environment. Uh, everyone described her as having just a very low-key, chill vibe. She was well-liked by all of the owners and bartenders of these establishments. Um, police Captain John McMahon would later say she was affable, outgoing, friendly. Her friends were rather diverse. She knew teachers and artists. Her circle of friends was a very large interracial group. She knew an awful lot of people. One friend who later spoke to the media said that she had struck up a conversation with him by revealing that she had read his lips and had followed a conversation he was having at the other end of the bar. And they kind of hit it off after that. Uh, So it was one of these local watering holes that Roseanne was last seen alive. This was a bar called Tweeds, where she was a regular. I don't know why Tweeds (laughs) made me laugh. Uh, It kind of sounds very yuppie, even though this is pre-yuppie area. I, I'm sorry, era. era. Yeah, uh, it, it it made me think of the Preppy Murder. I can't remember what that bar was called, but it's like that was probably a place they would have gone to if it, right. it still existed. Right. Um, okay. The morning of January third, when investigators arrived, they were struck struck by the brutality of the crime, which was the definition of overkill. Roseanne had been stabbed eighteen times, six in the neck, twelve in the stomach, a red candle, or I also saw. Uh, In one account, a broom handle had been stuck into her vagina. A statue that appeared to be a bust of a woman, possibly Roseanne, had been used to hit her in the head and still lay partially across her face. Uh, Investigators had very little to work with. There were no fingerprints. The shower was left running, leading them to assume that the killer had cleaned himself up before leaving. And the apartment appeared ransacked and very messy. The only really unusual thing that they found were two pieces of paper on the nightstand with drawings of, one had a drawing of Mickey Mouse and one had a drawing of Donald Duck on them. Another weird thing that happens while they're there, uh, a phone call comes in. It's a man asking about Roseanne and seeing if she's okay. Cops try and get a name, but this person hangs up pretty quickly. And obviously at this time, there's no way to trace a call like that. So police are very baffled. Who could have done such a thing? Obviously, this kindergarten teacher does not have enemies. There's no sign of a break-in, meaning that this was either a push-in, which was a popular crime at the time where you would follow someone up to their apartment and right when they unlock the door, push them in and get into their house that way. That's That's really scary. That's really scary. Uh, I used to be really scared about that when I would enter my building, like making sure no one came in after me, even though... I don't think that I ever knew anyone that happened to. It just right. like was one of those things. Um, or it was someone that Roseanne willingly let in, someone who she trusted. So while the crime scene is being processed, investigators began interviewing neighbors and anyone they could get to get a better idea who Roseanne was and how she could have ended up the victim of a homicide. Unfortunately for detectives, they canvassed Roseanne's apartment building and no one had heard anything uh, from that night because a lot of people were still out of town for the holidays. Remember, this is right around the start of a new year. Um, Another thing I think people don't sometimes get when you live in these massive apartment buildings, you kind of create this veil of privacy, like blinders (laughs) that you're keeping separate even though you're right next to each other. So sometimes it's not that people are ignoring things happening. They really kind of don't see things because it's just like this way you live in this kind of situation. Now, getting 
then getting things out of the neighbors was sort of useless right then. Investigators expand their search to local businesses. Finally, they hit on something at this nearby bar called Tweed's. They found out that Roseanne was not only a regular there, it was where she was Monday, January 1st, the last time she is seen of live. Detectives interview the owner, Stephen Resnick. He said that Quinn had come into the bar at about 9 or 10 the night of January 1st, leaving with a group of people about 1 a.m. to go to the Copper Hatch across the way before coming back to Tweed's. He also said that despite Tweed's being full of its usual customers, there was one guy I didn't know. He said that he saw talking to Roseanne, and he suggested that cops talk to the bartender on duty that night to get more details. He also mentioned a man named Freddie Watson, someone he said that Roseanne had dated a while back. That relationship ended about a year before, after Freddie beat Roseanne up so badly uh, that she had a blackened eye and was seriously injured, um, and this happened at her apartment. So investigators, they have their first lead in their mind, like, who is this guy, Freddie? They go back to interview the, interview the neighbors, trying to verify this story about this domestic violence incident. Um, obviously there was no police report because she didn't file one. So they had to verify it, uh, as best they could enter a busybody neighbor who will end up creating what will become this image of Roseanne that gets sort of taken by the media and the public. It all kind of starts with this, uh, what is her name? Gladys Kravitz or whatever from Bewitched, the busybody, yes. like Stevie Neighbor. Yeah. Mm. So she recalls seeing a man coming over to Roseanne's often who fit the description of Freddie. She added that one time she intervened after hearing screams and saw a man who appeared to be Freddie dashing out of Roseanne's apartment yelling obscenities. This neighbor found Roseanne disheveled and bruised with a black eye sobbing. Two weeks later, she said she heard more sounds coming from Roseanne's, but this time it was different. In her opinion, and it sounded like consensual rough sex. She then said Roseanne had a habit of bringing rough-looking men who seemed uneducated back to her apartment. Oh, no. I have no idea how you discern that someone is uneducated (laughs) by seeing them. But obviously, I'm guessing there's some racism involved or something. Like, yeah. Because that just seemed... And Freddie was black, too. Like, So I feel like she has some uh, issues because that seems very weird. And also, what does rough mean? Like, yeah. It's just uh, weird. Now, the thing about Roseanne to know is that she is finally coming to her own after a very awkward teen year period. She was dealing with that back surgery. She really felt like an ugly duckling. And now she's like a vibrant, attractive woman who likes hooking up sometimes and men like her. So it is true um, that she is fine having the occasional one night stand and maybe liked rough sex even, but who fucking cares? Right. It doesn't matter. So this nosy neighbor, she's just really an uptight bitch. Uh, And it's like, yeah, give the info, but you don't need to add all your commentary. Right, Um, right. So investigators were building this picture of who she was, and all the and although the neighbor made these remarks in kind of a gross, gossipy way, it would become relevant that Roseanne may have brought someone home from the bar that night. Investigators go back to Tweeds, where they're able to talk to Kenny, the bartender, finally. He said Freddie Watson wasn't there that night, but Roseanne was definitely there reading and then talking to the regulars as usual. He also said it wasn't one strange guy there who no one knew. It was two guys, both of them good looking and kind of blondish, one seemingly older than the other. He even thought that they might be two brothers. 
At some point, the older one left and the other one stayed and started talking to Roseanne. In the early morning of January 2nd, they leave Tweeds together. Investigators interview more bar patrons from that night, and these two guys really stood out to everyone there just due to the fact that it was such a regular crowd. A composite sketch was made by talking to these various customers, but the result was pretty much generic white guy. Yeah. Like it was just, it could have been any guy, uh, any white guy. That's just how bad it, or sort of how indistinct it was. Investigators get a call from another customer who wants to meet alone with them. This guy is uh, someone that everyone referred to as the artist. He said while he was there that night, he was talking to one of those men. He told the artist his name was Charlie Smith, and he had just moved to New York City and was looking for a job. He asked the artist what he did, and he said, I'm an artist. Charlie Smith Smith asked him to drop two pictures for him, saying he'd paid two, um, sorry, $6 each. Investigators knew they were on to something when the artist said the two pics he drew were one of Donald Duck and one of Mickey Mouse, <gasps> the same ones found on Roseanne's nightstand. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Now they're like, this guy is the connection. He was in her apartment that night. But Charlie Smith is obviously a fake name. Like, that's not a real name. Uh, So even though this is a very legitimate lead, we still have to figure out who this guy is. And like, where do you fucking begin? It's like a needle in the haystack in New York City. Uh, So he's clearly, in their minds, a witness or a suspect. Uh, So it's a simultaneously thrilling and frustrating new lead. Now, news of the story finally breaks January 5th. That's pretty much because the New York Daily News, which is a tabloidy type paper in New York, if you don't know, picks it up. It's an ideal story for them because it involves sex, murder, and the chance to slut shame. It's like something they're all, all up on. This story really takes off and people have a lot of opinions about this case, mostly bad ones. Much like today, these things tend to conform, I'm sorry, confirm everyone's already strongly held be- beliefs. Like like if you think women should stay at home and keep their legs closed, it's like, see, I told you. It's just like, it's one of those things. It's kind of confirming all their things, our liberal values, destroying society. Uh, it's all of that kind of stuff. So this is just uh, so prevalent during this time because people really, really didn't like women fucking and yeah. they still, they still don't like it. It was a backlash. Uh, so it's not just the tabloid papers, though, that are pulling this shit. Even the New York Times is writing really awful stuff. Uh, they say in one of their articles, the essential focus of concern in this case is the girl's lifestyle. Uh, they also have a quote from Captain McMahon saying, an end like hers should be expected. The the, the police yes. said that? Yes. Holy shit. Like, it's like, that's what happens. Like, I mean, it's look. like, that's just, that's not the inevitable conclusion. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's just like, they didn't even feel like they couldn't say this stuff. Like, right. Uh, so if you're wondering what victim blaming is, this is like a textbook case of victim blaming. Now, six days after the body is discovered, the cops are nowhere and they're finally like, fuck it. Let's release the shitty composite sketch. Like we have nothing else to lose. I'm just picturing it looking like that leprechaun. It's it's like a step up from the (laughs) leprechaun, but barely. So, you know, part of their concern is that it's just going to lead to a a lot of false alarms because everyone's going to be like, oh, that's my... My, that's Dave. That's Dave from down <laughs> from the third floor. Right. You know, so it's like uh, it's like so generic. They're just concerned. They're gonna have to sift through all this bullshit. But surprisingly enough, they do get a call uh, from someone saying his client has information on the case and would like to come in. His client is forty two year old Gary Guest. Before he'll talk, though, Guest lawyer wants to cut a deal for immunity with the Manhattan Assistant District Attorney attorney and they they give him the deal uh so once that's all set he comes in and tells detectives everything that he knows now guest is a gay 42 year old executive who works at an advertising agency he said that uh the friend he was with that night who was staying with him was not named charlie smith but was named john wayne wilson He was 23 and from Indiana. He had recently 
been living in Florida. Guest said that he had a rough childhood and was a high school dropout. He had just at some point hitched a ride to New York with no plans or job. The reason for this pressing move, he was escaping a minor rap in Florida where he left behind a wife who was currently pregnant. He uh, often traveled back and forth between Florida and New York City. Once he was in New York City, he couldn't make ends meet and he began hustling, which is how he met Gary in 1970. They cruised each other one night at Times Square, went home together, and Gary basically became his sugar daddy. John lived with Gary whenever he was in New York City. But Gary was actually in love with John, and John just was not uh, in that same, you know, on that same level. At the time of Rosanna's murder, he described the relationship between them as just being friends. The detectives in the Crime to Remember episode, first of all, had one of the most horrible New York accents I've ever heard. (laughs) It was really bad. Like it sounded fake? It was just like everything was like, I just can't explain (laughs) it. It was just like bad. Or they would only do it on one or two words, a sentence. Right. Uh, and at some point in the, the reenactment, he said, like when this guy reveals this information, he said, so you guys is like a midnight cowboy relationship. Come on. <laughs> I was like, did that really happen? Or did they just make that up for the crime to remember? Because I didn't see it anywhere. Yeah. But it was just like, uh, it was very funny that they chose to add that to the crime. I, I was like, I need to know who writes these uh, oh, scenes. I would love to write Me for too. them and act in them. Absolutely. Why can't we just do it all? <laughs> We're triple threats. Yeah. <laughs> According to Gary, the night of the murder, they ate dinner a few blocks from Tweeds, and as they passed the bar on the way home, they decided to go in for a drink. Gary had lived close by, and even though he did live close by, he had never been to Tweeds. But not long after arriving at the bar, he grew bored and left while John Wayne Wilson stayed behind. Early the next morning, Gary says he woke up and found John sitting on the sofa looking extremely agitated and very off. He says that he said to Gary that he killed the girl from the bar last night. Gary is in shock at this point and doesn't quite know what to believe because John is a liar. John has lied to him about like everything and anything. He's very manipulative and he's always trying to get money out of uh, Gary. I'm sorry. Is Gary his last name? No, it's his first name. <laughs> his name is Gary Guest. How is it spelled? G-E-A-R-Y. Gary. Gary. Like, yeah. Like Gary Street. Yeah. In San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm like, is that his first yeah, name? Yeah, I'm not, I don't say Gary weird. No, I <laughs> I know you don't. No, but it could be the last name. No, I know. I, yeah. Because that's my dad's name. Yes. And you've, you've said my dad's name. I've said Gary many times. I have an uncle Gary. I just, I'm sorry. Yeah, Gary. I'm, I'm totally paying attention. I just, no, but it's to... hard because it's hard. Uh, Gary does sound like a last name. So, so John is agitated and he confesses to Gary. He says he kills, he killed the girl from the bar. Gary does not quite know what to believe at this point. John tells him the whole story. He said that after um, Gary left, he strikes up a conversation with Roseanne. The pair had spoken to her earlier that night. That's why he's like the girl from the bar. At some point, he and Roseanne leave the bar to go back to her apartment, smoke pot, and have sex. And somebody at the bar had earlier told police that she was spotted there with two guys, and one of them left at one point. Yes. 
Other people had seen them interact right. uh, and them there. So, and that's what they did initially. They go back to her apartment, they smoke some weed, they make out and start to have sex. But John Wayne Wilson tells Gary, Gary, now I'm going to say Gary, that he was too drunk to perform. He said that Roseanne insulted him and demanded that he leave her apartment and an argument ensued. After a struggle, he said that he picked up a knife and stabbed Quinn, uh, Roseanne, 18 times in the neck and abdomen. After the murder, he told Gary that he covered her with a bathrobe, showered, and left the apartment. Before leaving, he wiped his fingerprints off the murder weapon. Uh, He wiped down all the doorknobs and all the surfaces uh, using one of her slips. He even said that he wiped down the elevator after he left the uh, elevator shaft or the elevator car, uh, and on his way out, he wiped the doorknob. Like He was very thorough. Gary says he did not call the police because he still couldn't believe what he heard. Wilson went to bed. As I said, he was a liar. John Wayne Wilson was a liar a lot. So he thought he was fabricating the story in order to get a plane ticket to go home. Uh, He often would manipulate him to get money to leave town because he had to go visit his wife in Florida and he would go home to Indiana as well. So he does give him money to leave town. He's like, okay, here's some money to leave town. Over the next few days, they keep in touch by phone. Um, John Wayne Wilson's first stop is Miami to see his pregnant wife. Then he flies to his brother house, brother's house in Springfield, Illinois. Now, Gary is still unsure about what actually happened, so he begins looking in the paper. Uh, he gets every paper he can to see if there's anything about this murder happening, and uh, you know he doesn't see anything. He's the one who makes the call to the apartment when the detectives are there (gasps) asking if Roseanne is okay. So he even checked in there to see what was happening, but he couldn't, he couldn't find any evidence that a murder had taken place. So in some ways he is in denial, uh, but at the same time, he's sort of like, he wants to believe that it didn't happen. So he kind of, he like goes there. But it wasn't in the paper because the story hadn't been made public yet. It had actually been left off the daily crime docket that goes out to the press since the the police didn't deem it important enough of a case initially. But it finally makes the docket a few days later on the 5th of January, and the Daily News immediately grabs it and starts publishing uh, information and stories about it. Uh, So... Gary finally sees these stories in the paper and he's like, fuck, his worst fears are confirmed, but he still doesn't call the cops. So what makes him finally do it? Well, when Gary Guest saw the sketch in the newspaper, it looked exactly like him. That leprechaun? Yes. Customers had inadvertently described Gary rather than John when making the composite. I mean, he is a basic looking white man. Gary. Gary. So this- I mean, they both kind of are. So when the customers were describing the guy they were describing gary all of them and not john Fuck. so he saw that in the paper and that's when he's like oh shit i'm gonna get implicated in this murder he calls his lawyer and tells him everything the lawyer advises him to go to the authorities with this story um he gets full immunity and agrees to help the investigators find john So the detectives tap his phone, Gary's phone, and the next time John Wayne Wilson calls, he gets him to confirm that he is at his brother's house in Illinois. The following morning, detectives knock on the brother's door. Wilson basically looks up from the couch and says, let me put on my shoes. He's very calm. He doesn't resist arrest or uh, put up a fight pretty much at all. Now, initially, when they are questioning John, 
He says he was in Florida. He wasn't at Tweeds in the, on the night in question and that he didn't even know who Roseanne was. Then he finds out Gary told them everything and almost immediately confesses to the murder, including reiterating the story he told Gary, only this time he really ups uh, Roseanne's behavior, which he considers to be uh, why he did what he did. According to him, she would not lay off of him. She started berating him the minute he couldn't perform. Uh, He said that she then tried to turn it into kind of a rough sex situation, started to push him and slap him saying, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do now? He claimed that she sneered at him and insulted him saying, show me that you're a man, Prove, prove to me that you're a man. According to John, when his manhood was questioned, he snapped. Although I couldn't find any information about his sexuality, I do think he considered himself straight, but obviously had sex with men for money. So I don't know that he was closeted, but regardless, uh, he definitely had some issues regarding his sexuality, um, even if it was just shame surrounding the sex work that he did. Uh, And I don't doubt that doing that work, he did face like homophobic uh, mistreatment, attacks, slurs, et cetera. So I know you know, that's something that happens when you're uh, in that line of business sometimes. So I'm not saying this is an excuse for him doing what he did, but that was maybe part of what sent him into this rage. So he said she wouldn't shut up. So he finally started strangling her before stabbing and beating her. He claimed uh, it was her fault because she just pushed him uh, to the limit and pushed him too far. Now, alternative theories um, about this situation obviously exist because most people who know her do not buy this depiction of Roseanne at all. Although it seems like um, everyone agrees that he couldn't perform and didn't get an erection and that did humiliate him, they completely disregard his version of what happened after that. And in their minds, what happened probably was Roseanne was upset thinking that it was her fault he couldn't get hard and that it was like a personal, uh, she felt bad about herself that she wasn't sexy enough, which was in line with her backstory of being someone who was an ugly duckling. And even though she was sort of getting more comfortable with her sexuality, she still had a lot of insecurities about her scoliosis surgery, her back scars and stuff like that. So they think that when he saw her be upset about her not being sexy enough for him, he took it as being about him uh, not, like, upsetting. She was upset because he couldn't fuck her, basically. So, and other people speculate that he had a lot of deep feelings of worthlessness, that he was unable to earn money to support his pregnant wife. His only skill was having sex, and now even that was sort of not working in his favor. Although this was not a, uh, she was not hiring him. This was just a, a hookup or whatever. So, Crime scene evidence also challenges the idea that he couldn't get hard. There was seminal fluid found in Roseanne. So investigators believe he sexually assaulted her after she was dead. So uh, after he confesses, he gets incarcerated at the Manhattan detention complex known as the Tombs. That's Uh, like a creepy name. I know the Tombs. (laughs) That's like the worst. Why do they call it that? I mean, I've read why they call it that. I just don't remember. But I don't is, remember either. It is, it is weird. It's they call grim. it the tombs. 
After he spends a few weeks there, he is sent to Bellevue Hospital on April 19th to be tested for childhood brain damage, which his attorney is obviously planning on using as part of an insanity defense. He stays at Bellevue for several weeks, but the tests are never administered, so he's eventually sent back to the tombs. Now, he is diagnosed as being suicidal, um, but the cells for Suicide Watch were full, so he is placed in a regular cell on the fourth floor. In May, he gets into an argument with a prison guard and threatens to kill himself. The guard taunts him by asking him if he wants sheets to help commit suicide and later threw bedsheets into his cell. He uses those sheets to hang himself on May 5th, 1973. Holy shit. So an investigation is held looking into the circumstances of his death, but no charges are ever filed. And nothing, he's never prosecuted for uh, Roseanne's murder as well. So a shocking end to a pretty shocking case. One person who followed the case intensely was Judith Rosner. Now, she was a divorcee back on the single scene and very interested in the pickup culture and the bar scene uh, of the 70s. By 1973, she had published three novels, and she was considered a writer of impeccable literary credentials. She is invited by Nora Ephron to contribute to a special woman's issue of Esquire magazine, and she writes an article about a real-life murder that sparked her interest, and that was the murder of Roseanne Quinn. Uh, So in the end, Esquire fears legal ramifications, so they decide not to publish this article, and that is when Rosner decides to write the novel instead. Now, in the book, it is loosely based on Roseanne, but it's a lot of of similarities. Uh, Terry Dunn is the name of the woman living in New York City who has the double life. She is also a schoolteacher who cruises single bars at night which isn't exactly, I mean, this is where some of the stuff is sort of upped for the dramatic effect that wasn't really true of Roseanne. Like she wasn't cruising single bars. She just went to her neighborhood watering hole and hung out like a social. It was like hanging out at friends almost. Yeah. So this is where a lot of this uh, stuff comes in. She's cruising single bars in this one. Uh, She's trying to make a new start. uh, And eventually she gets murdered by a young drifter that she just met at one of these bars and invites home. Uh, she's also someone who had suffered from an ugly duckling syndrome as a kid. Uh, she, and there's other things in the book that are different, but it's basically a woman who is insecure and seeking out sexual encounters to kind of make her feel better about herself. So this book, as I mentioned earlier, was a huge bestseller. It is like, it was really well reviewed. Everyone's like, this is a huge page turner. And the the book rights are sold for the movie for $250,000, which had to be a ton of money uh, back then. And it sticks pretty much to the story of the book. Uh, another sort of thing, the character that's based on John Wayne Wilson, uh, is his name is Gary in the, the movie. Oh, fuck. And his, he's played by Tom Berenger. Uh, so in, in the book, they really play up that he is gay. Uh, so he... He has this gay lover. He also has, he lies to her about a pregnant wife in Florida. When they're in bed together, he can't get an erection. He sniffs a popper. Teresa tells him it's okay if they don't have sex. And Gary in the movie misinterprets this as questioning his sexuality. And in a rage, he attacks her, rapes her, and stabs her repeatedly. And that's how the movie ends. Uh, this movie also 
is like the first role that Richard Gere has. He's uh, one of her suitors early on in the movie. Um, so it's sort of famous for that. Um, so yeah, for single women coming of age in, in the 70s, uh, recreational sex is no longer taboo. It's not for men only. This movie really was um, also presented as a cautionary tale. Like Hollywood did not... It's still It's still almost like a reefer madness level of paranoia and kind of... Um, like I said, a moral panic type thing. Yeah. Um, so it, it becomes not only like this misrepresentation of the life of Roseanne Quinn, but as we mentioned earlier, it really places the blame on her are all victims, uh, sort of like that women can avoid this fate if they don't act like these women do. Uh, So you can see why some women might be like, want to find some appealing aspects in these kind of cases. Like, okay, if I don't do this and this and this, I'll be safe. I'll be safe. But we all know that's just not the case. Like, yeah. I mean, mean, people are murdered by their spouses. Yes. And like, and 94 year old women are raped. Like, yeah, it's not like, uh, something you can avoid by being safe and being a good girl or whatever. Like, so, I mean, as we all, no, not just in this case, but in every case, the only person to blame for a woman's murder is the murderer. And in Roseanne's case, that is John Wayne Wilson. He did it. Yeah. She didn't do anything. Uh, and that is the story behind looking for Mr. Goodbar. Wow, Desi. I, you're laughing. <laughs> Sorry. I feel like I repeated myself a lot about no, this. You didn't. I just, I want to make sure people know. It was a good story. I've been so, um, Wondering when we were when we were going to do this case, I um, I'm really glad we we got to it because it is so fucked up. Yeah, and it's it's weird that a lot of these things are still just sort of the way media presents these stories, even so many years later. Yeah, it's like yes, there are some small improvements, but the underlying narrative narrative is that most people still think women act a certain way and they deserve what they get if they're going to do that. Right. Or that there's a way you can not have that happen. Um, To make you afraid. Yeah. Ashamed. Well, it's just weird that there should never, the focus should just always be the men who are doing this. Or whoever. Or the the woman. Or the woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's the person who's responsible. Whoever murdered someone should, should be to blame. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just said men, calm down, because most of the time men murder women. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, at least in this case. Yeah. Um, so, wow. That was really good, Desi. We will post some pictures on our Instagram page. Also, so. the movie you can't find. I had to get it illegally. Oh. They don't have that movie that anywhere. Holly- you can't even rent Hollywood it. crime scene doing Absolutely. crimes. You know what? If it was available, I would have bought it. <laughs> Isn't that weird, though? You can't even buy it or rent it's it? It's such a famous movie. It's weird when you find, like, you think you can have access to anything, and then, and then there can't. won't be something. You're like, excuse me. How There's dare a few you? movies like that that are, like, from the I 70s, too, where I'm like, uh, I can't get all, all that jazz. Do you know what movie you can't stream anywhere, at least the last time I checked, and I have checked several times, is Tea with Mussolini, starring Cher. Oh, really? I That's even like a more modern movie. You can't find it anywhere. I like That's like a movie I like to watch when I'm like sick, and like a few years ago, I really wanted to watch Tea with Mussolini, and I couldn't find it anywhere. 
Um, I was so bummed. You know what movie I keep wanting to rewatch? Mermaids. Oh, Did yeah. you see that movie? Yeah, when I was a kid. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I loved it when I saw you it. You can probably find that. I know. I'm not saying I couldn't find it, but, but I just Cher. Cher reminded me of that because I'm like, I need to rewatch Mermaids. I keep thinking of that. I so, want Cher to be in movies again. I, love I guess Cher. she's in Mamma Mia. She was in Mamma Mia. I forgot about that. I didn't that. see Mamma Mia. I didn't Mia's. see it, but I would like her to like be in more movies. I like when she does like Silkwood type movies. Yeah, like serious like dramas. Movies. <laughs> yeah, dramas. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I want her back at the Oscars too. In her Bob Mackie. In her Bob Mackie dresses. <laughs> She was quite the character. See, those are good Oscar days when Cher would show up in those outrageous, like, Bob Mackie gowns. Yeah, the fashion before everyone had a stylist. Yes. When we had Cher and then we had Demi Moore in bike shorts. Yes. Even, like, people are still... Whenever I see that Bjork swan dress on worst Oscar looks, I'm like, are you insane? It was a great dress. It's Bjork. Yeah. What What are you you fucking... (laughs) What do you think she's going to wear? I felt I always felt so ashamed of myself as like a tween or a teen, however old I was when she wore that dress, because I secretly loved the dress and I thought it was really cute. But people were like, it's terrible. I'm like, yeah, it's stupid, but it's fucking Bjork. It's Bjork. And she, it's not it, that bad. She, it wasn't I've that seen bad. way worse dresses that were trying to be nice. Like she was just being herself. Yeah. Uh, it's just funny that dress is always brought up and it's like, yeah, but we all remember that dress. Yeah. And uh, I even liked it. I think it was cute. Yeah, I, I thought it was cute. The other one that's the one that to me is truly insane is the um, what's her face? Laura Flynn Boyle. No, Celine Dion with the backwards. Oh God! Suit. The, the, <laughs> like that's someone who is. Uh, I'm sorry. She, her style is. I don't think she has style, so she really relies on her stylist. She has a style, but it's not one that I like. <laughs> But is it her style or is it her bad stylist? Here's the thing about that suit. It was on every worst dress list in 2000 or 99, whenever she wore it. But I feel like it's gained a cult status in the years where people like it now, but I still don't like it. Oh, I don't like that. I still don't like it. Here's the thing. You can't even put Bjork in the same category as people who are supposed to be stylish and best dressed. Not that I'm saying she's not stylish, but it's like you can't include her with people who are just wearing Galliano dresses and stuff like that. She's right. a different category. She's an artist. Cher, I'm sorry, um, Celine is trying to be like like high, high style when right. she wore something that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like that's why it's a bigger miss than the swan dress by a mile. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I just was never a fan of that suit. I thought it was, I think that was Galliano, that suit. We need to do, I want to watch that uh, Celine Dion movie where the actress plays her from like 16 to Wait, 50 or something. Celine Dion movie? Yes. Here's the thing. I would, <laughs> I would go see Celine Dion in concert. Oh, I would too. We've talked with, about together. this. I want to see. Only with you. Here's the thing. I don't even like her music, but I would see her in concert. I don't like her music, but I know like all of her songs. I, <laughs> I, do, I have deep respect for her. Just because just I don't like her music, I doesn't mean I don't have a deep respect for Celine Dion. I, and appreciate I 100% her. agree. I appreciate her. She is She's uh, a great deeply performer. weird person, yeah, but that's which I what like. makes her great. Yeah. Uh, she's sincere. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's probably really nice. 
I'm sure she's very nice. Yeah. I like her that she, she, I like her dorkiness. That's why I think I can like her, even yeah. though I don't like her music. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, we have to check out that well, Celine this movie. this was a fucking tangent. We're going to okay. go, this is like We'll after save it for show. the after okay, show. Okay, we're going to talk about um, what I did in Las Vegas on the after show, but we're going to save the food stuff for the mini episode. Okay. But we'll talk about all the other juicy details that... Okay. ...on our Patreon. Okay. Bye. Bye.